Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Tom Wexler, a real estate senior associate based in New York, and I'm here with Rich Gordet, a real estate partner based in Boston. And Rich and I are very excited for today's discussion of current trends in the life sciences real estate market. We're joined today by Joe Marconi, managing director at Bain Capital Real Estate. Joe has extensive experience in sourcing and underwriting life sciences real estate investments at all stages of development, as well as stabilized assets. This podcast is being released as part of the Ropes and Gray real estate practice report and associated webinar released on June 29th, 2021, discussing the evolution of global real estate investment in life science. With that, brief introduction. I hope everyone enjoys today's conversation, and I will hand the conversation to Rich. Great. Thanks, Tom. Um, And thank you, Joe, for joining us for this conversation. Let's kick it off with a a question on what what are the current demand drivers for life sciences real estate? Uh, Great. Thanks, uh, Tom and Rich, for having me. It's exciting to to talk about uh, the life science space that we've been in. On uh, your question, Rich, Current demand drivers, you know, both the the pace of scientific discovery and the level of funding for life science companies are at an all time high. The success of the life science industry during the pandemic has you know has further ignited support for life science companies and their their related discoveries. You know, the pandemic shined uh, a bright light per se on the importance of life sciences and the related companies really for the survival of our country and um, and even the world. You know, VC funding alone um, has grown at about 25% over the last five years. And this has led to um, increased scientific discoveries and uh, the pace being faster than they've ever been before. You know, the ability to produce at least three vaccines for COVID virus in less than a year is, is truly an amazing feat uh, and demonstrates the progress that the, the uh, industry is making in discovery. It also shows the FDA and the associated approval process is becoming more efficient and, and can react quickly when needed. So when you say funding, Joe, do you mean private funding for these companies or are you also focused you know, on government funding? Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, the funding sources include venture capital, private equity, um, as well as uh, the government funding and NIH-type uh, grants, uh, as well as the pharmaceutical companies in their own internal R&D or partnering with startup uh, entrepreneurial-type scientists and companies. Great. So with respect to R&D, do you see a shift from the larger pharmaceutical company R&D uh, being predominant to smaller distributed emerging company R and D. Yeah, so I think that's this is really where you know the magic started happening. Is you know 20 years ago there was was really only one modality for drug discovery, which was which was chemistry and chemistry based drugs, um, and it was easier for these um, large pharmaceutical companies to create large uh, R and D labs. Uh, in secure locations where they would 
would mix chemicals looking for new cures for the for whatever may be out there. The big technological advances that were happening, and the the first one that really changed the game was when uh, when we mapped the genome, and um, this was able to really advance the next modality, which was biologics, and um, which was antibodies and hormones, and that really completely changed the game. Right? This this took the science to a cellular level and really increased the specialization that was required by scientists to perform the discovery. And what this what this did was it pivoted how um, drugs and therapies were being created from internal R and D processes at these large pharmaceutical companies to the top knowledge clusters around the country and the world, you know, such as you know, the Cambridge and the South and the San Francisco's, where all of this science was happening at the universities and at the hospitals and by these, by these scientists who were very focused in these discrete therapies and modalities. Therefore, the, the pharmaceutical companies had to shift their part of their focus from the internally to trying to access this, this talent that was working on this. And, and this also allowed really private equity and venture capital to, to, to come into the game and start to fund these early stage companies in their in the higher risk part of the discovery process and then allowed the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies to focus on really where their strength is, which is the commercialization side of the business and come in and either acquire or partner with, with these specialized companies as they uh, got further along in the, the, the approval process and got closer to commercialization where they could see the true um, size of the uh, of the target market, uh, and, and now you, you fast you know fast forward into the last five years is more modalities have emerged, um, including cell and, cell and gene therapy, and CRISPR, and you know uh, mRNA, all of these these new uh, ways to deliver and uh, and create drugs, which we're now moving into six to ten levels of modality uh, and has just started to impact the need for real estate and um, and the advancement in those science. Great. So given, you know, that the, this shift from maybe from the big pharma R&D and the, these new modalities and then how that's developing too with even more new modalities, is it useful to think about the life sciences sectors um, or the asset class by categorizing the investing into different subsectors? I mean, we, we tend to think more along the lines of where the company is along their discovery process and, and bucket those companies or tenants into, into cohorts. Um, because that, that, that discovery process really defines on how the space is being used and, the, and where the, the space needs to be. And so where we spend the, the, the majority of our focus is in the, what I call the basic research, uh, which is these locations that are close to, the, to the, the center of the cluster, to these knowledge centers where the discovery is happening, they're, they're a higher level of wet lab base, but they may not be as large of a footprint, right? The a tenant a company may only need 
10,000, 15,000, 20,000 square feet, not 100, 200,000 feet. Um, the second in you know, the cohort, or you want to call it a subsector, is um, as those companies get to the size and focus of the commercialization side of the business, which generally has a larger footprint, um, a larger component of office. Uh, the employee base is not as uh, highly focused on the science and discovery side. It's a broader employee base. So, so these factors um, impact the way they think about space and location, um, and it's less dependent on where the, the heart of the cluster and the density and the, 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 the knowledge center is, um, but, but more about uh, there's a cost function that, that comes into play and, and the availability of where this, this broader uh, employee base may be located. Uh, the third uh, classification um, that, we, that we focus and think about is the manufacturing side of the business. And this is also touches really both of the other processes. There's there's a piece of manufacturing that's important in that early uh, basic research and discovery stage, as well as obviously when when we get to the, the commercialization. Uh, but that is is much more as you would think. It looks and feels like a manufacturing plant, but there's clean rooms. It feels more warehousey in in the way that it looks, but there's but there's certain segments within that manufacturing that needs to be closer to the R&D. That's the earlier stage part of the manufacturing process. And then um, the other piece of that cohort is, again, larger in scale and also looking for some price efficiency. Uh, and so that may be further out from the, the cluster or in some cases doesn't even need to be around the cluster, but needs to be in a, a you know, high power, lower cost of occupancy location. Given all the focus, and you know, obviously there's lots of attention and focus on life sciences, real estate, and, and clearly the past year with the pandemic has focused a very bright and positive light on this asset class. But like all things, um, what do you see as uh, the downside risk of life sciences, real estate, as we, you know, like, as I said, like with all things, it's hard to believe there can always be an upside forever. Sure, um, you'd love to, you'd love to think that, but um, the industry obviously is probably more efficient than people give it credit to sometimes. But um, you know, so we're always we're always thinking about uh, a demand shock. If I look at where the science is, where discovery is, you know, the supply out there is there's there's not enough supply for the demand. So I really try to focus more on demand shocks that may impact uh, the growth of the sector. The governmental risk comes into play here. Drug prices are changed due to a uh, strike of the pen in Washington. They may create less attractive returns for venture capital. And so the level of funding and support behind these, these early stage companies starts to disappear and slows down the growth of, of the industry. Uh, I, I personally believe that doesn't stop the growth. Uh, it's more of a pause because the uh, the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies, more than half of their pipeline now is being focused on what's going to be coming out of these small startup companies. And if that if the VCs aren't there to fund them and and, and create the growth, somebody's going to have to do it or pharmaceutical companies are going to have 
problems. And so there's there's a high likelihood that they will step down the risk spectrum and actually fund earlier stage of these companies so that they can continue to feed the, the, the pipeline of drugs and therapies that they have. And, and, then, and they've taken that level of risk uh, as they did you know, 20 years ago when they did everything internally. You know, I think that the, the life science industry is different than, than a lot of the other companies and, and say tenants in, in this startup world, right? There's, um, you know, a larger portion of the entrepreneurs are scientists, right? And their primary drivers in, in life is to cure cancer or cure the, the next big thing. It's not necessarily to create the next unicorn. And, and so whether the valuations and the, the, the growth of these companies um, allow for unicorn type status or whether they allow for something much smaller than that, they're going to keep doing what they got in the business to do, right? And that's fine cures. And that's, that's unique, right? Because um, the underlying driver of their desire to find those cures supported by the, the, the secular aging of America and the advances in technology is going to keep the pump primed. It's just all about who will be the funding source uh, to, to create that growth, whether that's the pharmaceutical companies, venture capital, or, or governments in, in general. You know, the other you know, potential risk out there for, from a demand shock is, is, do we have enough employees, right, that, that fit the profile of the scientists to grow these companies? Um, and that, you know, that's always going to be a question. It, you know, there's a big portion of that is will be served through immigration um, and uh, as well as, obviously, through some of the great universities here um, in the country. You know, you mentioned the tech industry and, and you know, industries that, that are, you know, other entrepreneurial type industries. are. Have you yet seen in, in the development of the life sciences industry that um, same kind of, you know, turnover of companies um, in comparison to tech? Again, it's, it's a little different than the tech world. The growth of a tech company and their success can be seen quite quickly, right? Um, where in, in the life science world, in the industry, it takes several years to develop therapies and develop drugs. And, um, and these venture capital companies, private equity companies understand that. And so funding rounds have grown and to support these companies along this five to seven year uh, or longer process of discovery. And so it, they're, they're clearly stickier tenants. They, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into their, their space. Um, and, um, and so the turnover rate doesn't, is not nearly as great as you would see in the tech world or in other, in other companies, but we're, you know, we're obviously quite early in, in this, in this growth, but that's, um, that's where we are today on. And, and speaking of growth, there's clearly been, um, a, a lot of growth in the industry and, and, and you mentioned, um, that, you know, there's, there's not enough supply for the tenants and users out there who are looking for space. The real estate industry creating an oversupply five years down the road because we're building based on the demand drivers of today. And as you know, you said the modalities and the and the science is evolving at such a rapid rate. 
are we also not able to look into the crystal ball far enough to see what the the real need for space is down the road? When you get that crystal ball shined up, Rich, anyway, <laughs> love, love to take a look in there. But uh, um, that, I mean, clearly that risk exists. And, um, you know, the, the real estate industry has a history of overreacting to to demand that, that, that clearly is going to be there. Uh, quite honestly, it's why we focus incredibly intently on location and where those tenants want to be, where those companies want to be, and not just in a, in a big, broad macro sense, right? One of the mitigating factors to this is that we are very early in the discovery phase in, the, in this in this new modality world, right? Um, you know, if you if you think about the tech world, you know, in the early or late '80s or, or late '90s or so, when uh, advancement started you know, moving along what they call the you know the Moore's law, like this exponential curve. Well, I mean, this is happening in the in the life science world at even a faster pace. Right. Um, in, in 2001, right, sequencing of a genome, you know, cost nearly a hundred million dollars. Just six years, that dropped to under 10 million. And over that next seven years, right, it's dropped to less than five thousand dollars. Right. That's that's a meaningfully faster gain than Moore's law would have predicted. Right. So that that just kind of demonstrates kind of where we are. We're we're just hitting that that. Uh, exponential inflection point and um, the level of science and discovery that is going to come from that is, you know, I believe, more than we can imagine right now. You know, but there will be push and pull, right? Some, some companies will fail. New discovery, new modalities will, will make companies in discovery stage have to either pivot or shut things down, right? Um, uh, but, you know, there is there's some versatility to the the IP that the that these companies are uh, are developing, and um, it's why these key clusters, the 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 Cambridges and the San Franciscos of the world, um, are very important because there's so many different specialties: you know, cancer, uh, uh, cardiothoracic, um, and that the IP that these that these scientists have discovered if the original indication either is not working or it gets superseded by some other modality, being in a, in a, in a cluster or a market where there's other indications and therapies and, and the depth of knowledge around that allows them to pivot. And that's, that's really critical to these clusters being important. So look, the, the risk is there. I mean, we're, we're like, we, we underwrite as if it's happening tomorrow. Um, but I, you know, I look at the demand drivers and, and I, you know, I feel like we've got, we've got good support behind us. So you've mentioned clusters quite a bit, and I know it's a term of art used in the industry. Can, let's dive a little bit more into that, um, about, you know, really, you know, what is a cluster, um, a life sciences cluster? What are the attributes that make up a life sciences cluster? And also, um, is there a potential to create, um, the new, new life science innovation districts outside of um, the established markets like Boston, Cambridge, and San Francisco? Clustering has benefited multiple industries uh, out there. 
And you know, the life sciences space is probably the, the, the most well-known and documented one of this. What's important to them is you know, having a high level of you know, academic IP in, in the market. It's universities, it's, it's research institutions, hospitals, uh, you know, a high level of venture capital, NIH funding where it exists already because the infrastructure is in place to evaluate companies um, and, and, and move things forward down that markets where there's a high level of talent existing and, um, you know, and constantly being created, right? That's you know, PhDs, doctors, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, and an ability to actually create the density, right? Uh, the, to create a, this clustering effect so that companies can collaborate with each other as well as uh, find talent to, to, to grow as they hit certain um, milestones. You know, the, the, the other thing that is critical, which I mentioned at the previous question, is having multiple um, specialties, right? You know, the, the, the broader the spectrum of diseases that have expertise in a market, right? the more opportunities there are for these scientists to continue to create and to continue to do what they love and find cures for the most difficult diseases, right, in the world. And there's not a lot of places like that, right? This you know, Cambridge and Boston, San Francisco had a lot of that ecosystem in place and now have gotten a, a meaningful head start, right? And and there will be other, there's other markets out there that uh, have, a, you know, a lot of these conditions, right? I mean, San Diego is obviously um, has, has them also um, and has, and the growth has been, uh, is, is obvious down there as well. If you ask me, do I think there's there's emerging markets out there that'll be you know, 30, 40 million square feet like the Bostons and San Francisco's are? Um, I think it's hard to replicate this these conditions right that are here in this ecosystem, along with the, the kind of head start that was there by both those those cities. But that doesn't mean that these companies aren't going to have good clusters and life science industry support within there. And I think that's good for the industry. I think um, we need to have a broad variety of clusters around the country uh, in, in lower cost uh, markets of the country in areas where there may be a deeper specialty. And they may be clusters of three, four, five million square feet, um, even upwards of 10 million square feet. And I think that's great for the, the U.S economy and the continued support for the innovation in this this sector. Um, you know, and that, that's you know, so I, I think there will be plenty of very strong clusters. I it's hard for me to see a replication of a, a Boston or a uh, South, uh, San Francisco or even San Diego, but um, I, I there, there will be several of them that will be great supports for the industry in general. Great. So, but in thinking about existing clusters and, and what's going on there and setting aside, you know, the actual real estate for where the tenants will live, what are the other constraints on trying to grow, you know, these more mature, uh, you know, these, these existing and, and, and um, larger clusters um, in being able to continue the growth and um, expansion of, say, a, a San Francisco or a Boston Cambridge? One of the biggest challenges that these that the San Francisco's and the Boston's 
um, and, and the San Diego to, to somewhat of a lesser extent is the cost of living in these markets. I mean, they're, they're expensive markets um, as they continue to grow as you know, the, the clustering you know, even more specifically in Boston, because all of these knowledge centers are, are really around uh, Kendall Square in downtown Boston. And so it creates a really intense clustering that drives obviously housing pricing, that drives commute issues, all of these things. Um, th- those are going to be big challenges for these mature clusters. Um, and to be quite honest, it's why it's a good thing to have additional clusters around the country that will emerge and be supportive of the industry because it'll it'll allow continued growth on a whole for the industry. Uh, and it 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 you know in, unless these big cities mature markets can really uh, resolve that issue, the, the, you know they're going to start to to uh, feel some impact from these these new clusters coming and and, and level the growth out a little bit. So we've talked a lot about um, the U.S. Um, how do you view the, the international life sciences real estate market? Our focus is, is primarily in the U.S. Uh, and we're following international markets uh, to a lesser extent today. But I would say, you know, the, the U.K. Is, is clearly the furthest along. Um, and, you know, there's a great cluster forming in, in, in an ecosystem uh, in the London area around you know Cambridge and Oxford um, that is is going to have great discovery there um, China is you know massively focused on life science and the government obviously can can help move things quicker there than than in in other areas um, but that's going to be another area where there will be real growth and real um, uh, discovery you know the the, the the benefit these international clusters have is that they're going to be able to uh, look back at the U.S. and see how these ecosystems developed, um, how they uh, interact, and, and hopefully translate some of that to their own markets and, um, you know, and allow for probably faster growth than the U.S. did. Just, you know, you'd learn lessons. Well, that's great, Joe. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have for today. And we really appreciate your time and sharing your thoughts on, you know, an industry that's both important uh, for real estate investors, but perhaps even more importantly for our world today and keeping us all healthy. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. Um, It's really, it's really wonderful to be part of an industry where, our tenants are actually changing the world uh, on a day-to-day basis um, so so quickly and so with such great impact. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Well, Joe, thank you so much again for joining us. You know, we really appreciate your time and all the insight. And for our listeners, you know, thanks again for tuning in. If you're interested in additional information on the topics we discussed today, as I mentioned earlier, our real estate ropes and gray group recently released a a, a report on a lot of these topics and others called beyond the lab talking about the evolution of global real estate investment in life sciences and you can find that on our website at www.ropesgray.com just a reminder to everyone you can always subscribe to our ropes and gray podcast series on apple google and spotify and other places 
Thanks again to Joe and to everyone for listening today.